Welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Tonight's show, you will hear some history from some of the folk affiliated with the spirit and methodology of Malcolm X. We will also listen to Malcolm X himself. In the first segment, we'll listen to a cousin of his, uh, Jamal X, James Baldwin, Maggie Hathaway, Ernie Smith, and again, we'll listen to some comments directly between a conversation with Malcolm and Bayard Rustin. And we'll listen to music from Mr. James Brown tonight on Full Circle. Hello, you are listening to 94.1 FM KPFA in Berkeley. And I'm your host, Stevie G. And again, we're going to celebrate... the birthday of uh, Malcolm X, which will be coming up Sunday, May 19th, and we'll be celebrating that today. And we'll also make notice of uh, Mr. James Brown, who was born on May 3rd. And I'd like to um, also remind us all that we are having a fun drive uh, right now, and so we want to make sure that we give you the information to keep the dollars flowing. So that number is 1-800-439-5732, and online at kpfa.org. Now, Malcolm Little was born May 19, 1925, and transitioned February 21, 1965, uh, not naturally, through an assassination uh, that still remains a mystery to this day. Uh, Malcolm was born in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, to an Earl Little, a Georgian native, and uh, he was a Baptist preacher, and Louise Norton Little, who was born in the West Indian island of Grenada. And the family soon after uh, Malcolm's birth moved to Lansing, Michigan. You know, it's no wonder that Malcolm became an activist later in his life. His father, Earl, himself joined Marcus Garvey's uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association and publicly uh, advocated for the black nationalist beliefs in a segregated America that was far too comfortable with the racist actions and ignored uh, a terrorist culture uh, called Jim Crow. Earl Little's activities eventually drew the attention of local white supremacists that called themselves the Black Legion. And that group even set their their home uh, uh, on fire at one point. Eventually, Malcolm's father was killed by a streetcar in 1931. Authorities ruled the incident a suicide, but the family believed he was killed by white supremacists who pushed him in front of the car. You know, this is one of those times when too bad, based on what's going on today with technology and what we're seeing with the smartphones and being able to have the community uh, keep watch a little more uh, with a little more detail and and record things. I wish we had something like that going on back then and help us out with what was going on. Uh, One of the best representations uh, with Malcolm X uh, really came from his own autobiography as written by Alex Haley, and that would be the autobiography of Malcolm X. And with that, 
I'd like to get into an interview uh, that was done with the Mr. James Baldwin. Uh, he was one who uh, was also very active during the civil rights time. And uh, James Baldwin, a poet, uh, artist, uh, really made an impression upon a, uh, a Malcolm X. And we want to get into that right now. How are you, James Baldwin? I'm a little tired. Exactly, but uh, fine. Your name came up, and Malcolm was referred to you in very endearing terms. He referred to you as a man who the establishment couldn't trust because you were a man above all. You were dedicated to people as he was. And Malcolm recognizes, so naturally we hold your word in very high esteem. Tell me, why did you ever really meet Malcolm X? I knew the first time I saw Malcolm just shortly before I met him. Um, I had been in the Deep South and uh, just come back to New York. And I forget what year this was. But um, I remember Malcolm, I making a speech someplace, like, um, I don't know, Carnegie Hall maybe. And um, I, guess I just come back from Savannah, Georgia. And I was talking about that. And I suddenly was aware in the front row of um, Malcolm, who face that scene. He was sitting like a little boy with his, his, uh, his long arms between his legs. And looking up like a little boy, you know. Um, I knew he was there to check me out, you know. And it scared me, I must say, you know. Um, and I, I was in the middle of something when I suddenly realized that he was there. And you know the way it can happen to you if you're on stage and you're thrown from, by some unexpected element because I was in a very funny position. I didn't, um, I never had considered myself to be, you know, a leader and didn't consider myself to be, you know, a speaker. I was doing um, something I had to do. But he was, you know, he was a speaker. You know, he was, um, he was our witness. And that he was, I was under his scrutiny, scrutiny for a minute. But then I met him later, and um, met him a few days later. We met on a TV show. Do you want me to go on? Please do. You're doing wonderfully. It was a very, you know, a very peculiar show we were doing. One of those. I won't mention the name of the show. It was one of those liberal shows, <laughs> and. Um, I was in a very funny place because the Black Muslims book, the, the book by Eric Lincoln had just come out. The Black Muslims in America? Yeah, Eric, Eric Lincoln's book. He was there. And the moderator was facing me at the end of a you know, fairly long table. Malcolm was next to the moderator. Um, I forget who else was there. But I do remember that there was an uh, older black journalist, whose name I won't mention either, who was next to me. Now, it was kind of fascinating to me because, you know, I'm an old Baptist minister, the minister's son, and I know, the, I know that rhetoric, I know that delivery, I knew what Mal you know, I, I used to do it, so I knew what Malcolm was doing. You know, every time, every time the moderator fell into Malcolm's trap, you know. I was supposed to um, be in some way in opposition to Malcolm because I was not a black Muslim. But what Malcolm was saying was true. And there was nothing I could say, you know, um, I was not about, you know, to pretend that, that uh, what Malcolm was saying was 
Well, um, Malcolm was off the wall because you know there was no way, no way, no, no way, no way to beat it. He was the what the man was saying was true. No, okay. Now I'm supposed to take a legal position. Like, what about the crime scene of LACP in Mississippi? You know, I I had to take a position of very. You know, you can't discuss you know that because there's no legal system in Mississippi. And next to me, the black journalist who was you know supposed to be my grandfather, really. He was talking about all the good white people of, of this country, of the South. And I was embarrassed, you know, for him. You know, embarrassed for me, you know. And I ended up, I, I, I know I ended up sounding exactly like Malcolm. Because I couldn't agree with the moderator, obviously. And I certainly couldn't agree with, you know, this other cat. You know, and all I could say was, you know, you're not answering Malcolm's questions. Yeah, I can. They're very real questions. Yeah. And that was when Malcolm said to me, you know, uh, we're soon addressing you as Mr. James X. <laughs> I'm a writer. I'm not, um, I'm a writer who's part of a revolution, it's true. You know, I'm not, um, I have another obligation, I have another responsibility. Um, to argue with you, for example. To argue with Malcolm, as I did. I have to take the position that I am, um, uh, I have to take the position that you produced me. I'm the poet that you produced. And I'm responsible for something which I may not always be able to name. Which has to be there for the people who produced me. When I'm gone, and when this particular aspect of this particular battle is over, the reason I never thought of myself as being a speaker, for example, is that um, the effort you have to make to be a speaker is antithetical to the, to the effort which I have to make at this typewriter. I'm alone when I'm working. I have to be. I'm confronting things which I have to confront. But I have to be aware that my major role is what I do by myself in the dark. For all of us, I hope. And not what I do, you know, on stage or on television, you know, in the light. I'm trying to clarify something to me, to you, and to this very dim republic. Uh, the only other thing that uh, I want to ask you primarily is about Malcolm's birthday. Now, uh, as you know, uh, in California, Chicago, New York, and uh, in fact, heard in Ethiopia, having very large celebrations for Malcolm's birthday. Now, uh, do you think it would be wise for us to continue to celebrate his birth or the day of his assassination? Let's, I would, I opt for the birthday. The day of the, if you are, if we're going to begin to celebrate the days of our assassinations, my dear, the year is not long enough. Let's celebrate the day of his birth. That means more, you know. Children are always being born. You know, the day of Malcolm's birth was a great day for all of us. The day of his death we all saw coming. It doesn't matter at all what England or Portugal or France or any Western country thinks of Malcolm, thinks of Cassius, thinks of me.
millions of people all over the world who are most of the world who will always be Martin and Malcolm and Medgar the saints this is why all the western capitals are upset we had a funny relationship in a way you know because he was very shy and very busy and I was I'm very shy I was very busy but we understood each other very well and we knew what had to be done we both knew that you know the way he was doing it was one way and I was doing it trying to do it another way but we worked as brothers we worked as allies and uh, I thank you Mr. James Baldwin for your face-to-face -face interpretation of Malcolm X and a man who certainly should know what Brother Malcolm was like because after all, Brother Malcolm did revere you and had uh, mentioned your name, as I know so many others wish that he had mentioned theirs. That's just amazing, uh, the opportunity to hear. Uh, that comes from the uh, Pacifica archives, uh, to hear James Baldwin uh, speak on Malcolm X and speak on his friend and his uh, partner and working through, uh, as we are today, with uh, civil rights and moving humanity forward. Uh, for everyone. And it was also a nice thing for him to mention birthdays and mention uh, the trinity of the civil rights movement of the saints. And that would be Medgar, Malcolm and Martin. So with that, again, I'd like to say that we are in the middle of a fun drive for KPFA radio. Uh, this station is independent, save for the contributions by you, the community, allowing continuous progressive thoughts and actions tailored to your needs and experiences. And we are in the struggle with you for the past 70 years. So I'd like to throw out a, a show target uh, involving sevens, if I could. How about a $7 donation? How about a $70 donation? And I'm going to give you the information so you can uh, reach out. The number is 800-439-5732 and online at kpfa.org. If you make that $70 donation, there's some gifts that come with that. You can get a beanie, a KPFA beanie. You can get you those nice, warm KPFA socks. Because sometimes with all this climate change, you might not know when you might need to wear some socks. You can also get a shirt. And there's a water bottle because we all need water. And that $70 would go a long way with the station. So let's now take a break and let's get to Mr. James Brown. Let's go into a little music here. I'd like to know, are you really ready for some super dynamite soul? Then thank you because now it's star time. Introducing, ladies and gentlemen, the young man has had over 35 soul classics. Among these classics are tunes that will never die. Tunes like Try Me, Out of Sight, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. I feel good, like a sex machine, because you're super bad. Get up, get into it, and get involved, because you got soul power. Introducing the world's greatest entertainer, Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, the hardest working man in show business. Ladies and gentlemen, the star of the show, James Brown! 
Mr. Dynamite, James Brown. Music coming after you. Revolution of the mind. James Brown. And since we're in this little festive party mood, uh, let's talk about an event that's happening tomorrow. Again, the Malcolm X festivities are happening. And tomorrow, May 18th from 11 to 7 p.m., the Eastside Arts Alliance presents the 19th annual Malcolm X Jazz Festival. Now, this used to be an event, or because of the weather, this is an event that is generally held outdoors at San Antonio Park, Foothill Boulevard at 18th in Oakland. And I'm going to uh, tell you something about it. Uh, we're sure that you all have noticed that the wet weather due to this unfortunate uh, turn of events, the Eastside, as a collective, has decided to cancel the festival at San Antonio Park this year. But as an alternative... We will be having an extremely intimate gathering with a few jazz musicians and poets at Eastside Cultural Center, 2277 International Boulevard, same Saturday, May 18th, that's tomorrow, from 11 to 7 p.m. So we will be celebrating the legacy of Malcolm X and black and brown unity. The space is very limited and we will reach capacity quickly. So please keep that in mind if you want to get in and join us. Another way to gather and support and to attend, uh, there's going to be an African Liberation Day celebration May 25th from 12 to 5 at the Tassafaranga Center, 99, excuse me, 9, 975 85th Avenue in Oakland. And Oakland is, is uh, proud for a block party Saturday, June 29th at the International and 23rd Avenue. And Oakland is proud Black Cultural Zone block party is Sunday, August 4th at the Allen Temple Baptist Church 8501 International Boulevard. And so, again, you can uh, reach out to uh, online with the eastsidearartsalliance.org and look for that Malcolm X Jazz Festival. If you go to that page, you just look up and to the left and you will find it. So there is an opportunity to still participate in the festivities. You know, well, that, my, my little chant would have been rain don't stop the house. But I said rain won't stop this festival, right? So that festival is still going to take place. It's going to just take place a little bit indoors. And so with that, again, we want to make sure that everyone understands that we are in the middle of a fun drive. And we want to make sure that you all have the opportunity to uh, reach out. Uh, that phone number is 800-439-5732. And also KPFA.org, which you have been hearing and which you'll be hearing more throughout this, this show tonight with Full Circle, are from the archives. There's the Malcolm X collection of speeches that goes for a $180 donation, and you can receive that gift. Uh, there's also the uh, Voices That Change the World. And so there are many opportunities to mine a lot of information in history that happens out of this great institution called KPFA and the radio station. So with that, I want to get into the next segment that we have. Uh, this is a young lady who was a journalist uh, and who knew Malcolm. And this is Miss Maggie Hathaway. Let's hear her communication and conversation and speaking on Malcolm. And now we go to the Tend to Touch of Maggie Hathaway, another person who served Malcolm quite well quite eagerly 
and quite vociferously, if you will. And let's find out from uh, from the courtroom where the trial of the black Muslims took place to the quiet, sloping Hollywood hillside where Malcolm spent many a, a night discussing with Maggie Hathaway, who was the Hollywood chairman of the Malcolm X Foundation. Maggie? Hi. How are you? Fine. Very good. Do you want to say something? Oh, yes. I want to say a lot of things. I, too, loved Malcolm. I walked, talked, and debated with him. I was fortunate enough to have spent nine months with Malcolm. It happened because no other reporter would accept an assignment. I was asked to report the Muslim versus police brutality trial. Remember that? Quite well. You remember that? My seat was next to Malcolm, and for nine months, I breathlessly listened to Malcolm's philosophy. During the trial, he requested through his attorneys that I sit in the courtroom press box, and was I thrilled. It all happened when Malcolm really wanted his tape recorder <laughs> to catch a few choice Brutality bits, you know, and he, and they didn't allow him, you know, I know that. to use his tape recorder. So uh, he suggested uh, that uh, when I went into the box that I should carry the tape with me. And, of course, me adoring him, I carried it with me. Bless you, Margaret. Oh, yes. But the first day, I proved one of Malcolm's points. He had always warned me that I was a female. I broke down into tears as I listened to a paralyzed brother, a bullet in his spine, testifying how he and his brother were shot and lying on the ground. The brother was dying and asked his paralyzed brother to hold his hand. When the police saw this, they stomped their hands apart. There was a 15-minute recess. I broke into bits. As they led me from the press box for a 15-minute recess, Malcolm simply said, not excited, just as Malcolm is, cry, Meg, cry, all of you. You are still a female reporter. But if you love your people, go to your paper and write it so the world can come and cry with us. I shan't ever forget that statement. It's a beautiful statement. Wasn't it, though? It was really through a challenge that uh, I became the founder and first president of the Beverly Hills Hollywood NAACP. In Beverly Hills? Yes. That's strange for the NAACP, but go ahead. Don't me. Well, it was through a challenge um, that Malcolm said uh, about the best thing we could do is make money, and that's exactly what we did. But nevertheless... Um, I loved Malcolm, and I used to attempt to debate against him. Can you imagine me attempting to debate Malcolm X? Logically, no. So but, uh, Malcolm was very merciful. <laughs> this is true. Nevertheless, on several occasions, there were so few people attending our mass meetings. Yes, really, mostly through fear. They just didn't come. Until, I guess, uh, through desperation, Malcolm allowed me to speak. I think I remember seeing you taping many of the speeches. Yes, I taped many of them. 
Uh, Malcolm one day said, Mag, did you ever think that you would live to see the day that black people would be afraid of black people? I could go on and on and on. I'm sure you could. Yes, but I, I am very fortunate to say that I was one of Malcolm's friends when he lived. I walked and I worked and I attempted to help in my little uh, meager way, let's say. Anything else you want to know? No, not really. Uh, you know, that's nice to hear a black woman, you know, eulogize a black man because there's so few black men that, you know, that uh, time can record, unfortunately. Uh, uh, but one thing that we've both failed to mention is when Brother Malcolm X was last here and we were running scared, really, actually scared because we were, there were people who were trying to kill us, he uh, did say, Jamal, there's one thing I want you to do for me in the morning. And I asked, I said, what's that? Because I had dropped the minister, Malcolm. I said, what's that, Malcolm? He said, um, call Maggie Hathaway. She'll know what to do. And he never told me exactly what it was because I was really too afraid to, you know, comprehend. And uh, actually, I, I did that, you know, I called. And uh, we finally got in touch with each other. And out of that embryonic, uh, wonderful sentence, get in touch with Maggie Hathaway, now has evolved the Hollywood branch of the Malcolm X Foundation. Beautiful. Thank you, Maggie. Wow, Miss Maggie Hathaway, a friend of Minister Malcolm X. Uh, again, these archives, this information that we are able to capture uh, through the KPFA. Uh, we have the speeches of Malcolm X. That collection is $180. And we also have uh, a bit that you just heard and some other excerpts as the James Baldwin earlier with Voices That Changed the World. Uh, so we have many opportunities for you to um, recapture some voices and some history on a number of things. But as of right now, we are celebrating Malcolm X and his birthday, which is going to be Sunday, May 19th. And we just want to share a little of these tidbits with you. So to make sure that you can reach to donate, we want to tell you the telephone number. That's 1-800-439-5732 or 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Or the website, the website, excuse me, kpfa.org. And so let's reach out. Now, I want to also say this. We're going to, again, try to get a little target here. Let's say the lucky number seven. So I want to see some donations, $7 donations, $70 donations, $700 donations, $7,000 donations. I'm going to just keep going. But with the $70 donation, there will be some gifts for you. There'll be the KPFA beanies. Keep you warm. Socks. Able to get through that house and get to that popcorn at night. You need those socks. How about some shirts? And, of course, we got to drink water. So there's some water bottles there with KPFA. And all that for just the donation gift of $70 will get you those gifts. Okay? So, again, uh, we want to make sure that you reach out. 1-800-439-5732 or hey KPFA 1-800-HEY-KPFA or online at kpfa.org. So in getting back and thinking about what was just said um, and um, Martin's relationship with uh, Miss Maggie Hathaway, uh, he held women in high regard. So I wonder what he would say today about an Elizabeth Warren who's now picking up some traction in the polls or else uh, Shirley Chisholm, who ran for president. And definitely Kamala Harris. Now, I'm sure I can't actually say, play favorites or anything like that. I'll just probably say something like sitting on the dock of the bay. 
but you can probably pick up from that what's going on. And with that, uh, let's listen to another song from Mr. James Brown and see what he has to say in celebrating women. KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley. I am Stevie G, your host, and this is the celebration of the late Malcolm X and the late Mr. James Brown. So we're celebrating May 19th for Malcolm X, and James Brown's birthday was uh, May 3rd. Uh, James actually transitioned on Christmas morning in 2006. So very sad time at that that time. So... Um, I'd like to once again remind everyone that we are going through a fun drive and we are open to receive your donations. You are listening to the archival collections of um, Malcolm X, some of uh, some people that knew Malcolm and worked with Malcolm. And also there'll be some speech information as well. So uh, up next, let's see, excuse me, let me actually just give you those numbers real quick. So that number is 800-439-5732 for the donations. That's 1-800-439-5732. And also online at kpfa.org. And again, if we target, let's say $70, I'll just throw out a number. Since it's the 70th anniversary of KPFA, $70, you can get a beanie. You can get some socks. Warm up those footies. You can get a water bottle. You can get a shirt. And, you know, share that KPFA brand, that community love. 
So having said that up next, we want to get back to some of this archival information. We'll listen to someone who really knew Malcolm well and worked with Malcolm uh, uh, intimately, uh, even after his association with the Nation of Islam. And this will be a Mr. Ernie Smith. Let's go to him right now. From the tender to the uh, obtruse is Ernie Smith. A lot of people know Ernie from a lot of various appearances, various and sundry appearances that he's put on, both on television, radio, and in the streets many, very many times. At the trial of Deadweiler and uh, as his uh, charades as a black Muslim minister or assistant minister or whatever thing he took. But he, uh, the important thing is he knew, served, and loved Malcolm. He wasn't afraid to say so then. And in life, and now after his death, Ernie Smith has become the Los Angeles chapter of the Malcolm X Foundation. I guess the most I could really say was, you know, how actually it was, in fact, Malcolm that brought me into the mosque, or as they call it in the mosque, out of the grave. Uh, and he really woke me up to how I was in a really self-perpetuating, and uh, I think that it, uh, it was that. Because I was a gunsler and a rooty poo, riding around in a low down car, trying to keep everybody's daughter in town knocked up. Them that I didn't knock up, you understand me, or them that I wouldn't claim. Uh, when I used to see Muslims going in and out of the Muslim temple, they had a chapter. And I used to pass there, and I used to see these men in black suits and these women with long dresses and giving funny handshakes and making some kind of funny utterance, some kind of sound. And, it used to, you know, kind of scare me because I thought they was the foreigners. And uh, I had crossed the other side of the street and walked down. The, it was sitting on the uh, southwest corner, and I would cross over the other side of the street because uh, them people in there, and uh, they, they were talking crazy. And uh, every time I'd hear them, you know, I'd sneak up by the door uh, and listen in, and the man was in there talking about the white man this and the white man that. That wasn't Malcolm at the time, but the minister in there at that particular time was uh, who everyone knew as John Shabazz. Well, it was once that uh, uh, I went to the mosque down on Jefferson in Normandy, and Malcolm was uh, the roving minister. He was uh, the minister of the mosque in New York, and uh, they were fixing to convert, uh, combine the two mosques and uh, open up the new one over on... Uh, Broadway, when I first heard Malcolm, and that was in about 1959, in September of 1959. And uh, at that particular time, I was going to Los Angeles City College. And uh, when I heard his speech, and it was so clear, and I, and what really impressed me was the way he spoke in parables. If there's one thing I have always, in, in my particular style of lecturing, uh, was to adopt the style of speaking in parables, using uh, 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 analogies that were most succinct and graphic and illustrative for the ghetto brother. For example, uh, but I believe in love, and, and you was preaching hate, you know. And he would come back with, sure, I don't know why you want to say we're teaching hate. He would tell him that, you know, the difference here is the kind of love you're offering. He would say, a wolf can love and a sheep can love. And a wolf can say, I love sheep. <laughs> and a sheep can say, I love wolves. 
But he'd say, characteristically, a sheep is an humble animal. Sheep can't eat nothing but grass. <laughs> he believes in the basic goodness and kindness of all animals. Now, whoop, he's not lying when he say he loves sheep. He loves sheep. He wants to eat the sheep. Because the wolf can eat sheep, grass, grass, and anything won't eat him. You see? So when the black man says, I love white people, and the white people say, I love black people, what you have here is an unrequited type of love. There's no reciprocity in it. He'd say, now, when you talk about the Negro problem, you're talking about white America's problem. What the white devils are going to do about 20 million unemployed, uneducated, untrained, and for the most part, unwanted Negroes. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about the Negroes problem, you're talking about dope addiction, juvenile delinquency, school dropouts, and things of that kind that no voting rights bill or open housing bill or civil rights bill, no other kind of bill, but perhaps a dollar bill, <laughs> is going to sign. And uh, he had a way of speaking very earthy to the black man. And this was what uh, impressed the brothers who were called the Do-Rag Brothers. And I saw myself in 1965 what Malcolm meant when he was talking about the brothers in the streets, you know, because... Uh, during 1965 Watts Rebellion, most of your cats who were black nasties were hiding under the beds. And who was out there really getting it on with Chuck? Them brothers with do-rags on the head, breaking in stones and, and, and tearing this man's town up. And this is one of the things that Malcolm knew. He knew that when the chips were down, all these brothers that were talking a good game didn't have nothing but a lot of lip going. You know, I was uh, uh, complaining about certain things not realizing that uh, the very thing I was complaining about, I was perhaps 80% of contributed to it as an individual. For example, uh, when somebody would ask him about violence, well, violence isn't going to get the Negroes anywhere. I don't believe in violence. He said, what do you mean you don't believe in violence? He says that if a man has a rope around your neck and he's dragging you down the street, and you struggling violently to get away from this rope, who's being violent? He says that it's an animal's natural right to resist oppression and, 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 and genocide. He says that any Negro that doesn't resist violence is insane. You see? And he was so earthy. And I think that that is the one thing that I will always cherish about him. His, his down-to-earth, nitty-gritty approach to the black man's problem. He didn't come with great big multisyllabic words and great big categorical syllogism. This is all the stuff that I've learned in college. Formal debate, you know, structure your arguments, you know, premise one and support it with premise B and all that. Malcolm had it, and the truth was like a two-edged sword. I would see him take professors of philosophy who were going to try to fill it, trick him up on campus. Uh, it is there that most uh, black bourgeois students, uh, uh, that's the only time they'd be willing, and some professor would have to force them to come and get a little light. And uh, so I really followed and collected a lot of Malcolm's speeches, and most people who hear me know that a lot of my style, and I'm proud that I use the style, and if ever they accuse me of using the style, you understand, I didn't have no style before he came along, so it don't matter to me accusing, uh, them accusing me of speaking, uh, trying to style like Malcolm, because I worship the man and will worship him in my dying day. <coughs> and uh, I uh, am really... Uh, glad and honored to have this opportunity to, to speak. Uh, uh, one thing that Malcolm uh, uh, kind of conveyed to me when he returned from Africa 
was that as a black nationalist, even though I was out of the mosque and had kind of transcended a lot of my vehemence against white people, I was still apprehensive about making any real friendships. And the one thing he kind of impressed me with was uh, the uh, total reactionary uh, uh, brand of, uh, of black that would totally impede my own progress, just thinking negative in, in and of itself and really feeling that. All right, all right. So we heard some of uh, Ernie Smith and his work with Malcolm and working with um, in Los Angeles and working on behalf of Malcolm X and working with him and working with the community and working with a lot of the brothers on the street at that time and working uh, to make things better in life, uh, not just for himself, but for those around him, those in the community. And we heard again, that was a piece from the archive collection, Voices That Changed the World. And this is part of KPFA. And we have a fun drive going on. And that's at 1-800-439-5732. That is also online at KPFA, excuse me, KPFA.org. We want to thank uh, Winston from San Francisco. Uh, thank you very much for the donation and the kind, kind words. Definitely, definitely. So really appreciate that. And let's see what else we do. Oh, yeah. Let's not forget our target with the donations. This is the 70th anniversary of KPFA. So can we get some sevens going? Can we maybe roll for some sevens? Lucky seven. Lucky $7 donation. How about a lucky $700 donation? But we also take... Something that gives you something, too. We want to get some gifts going your way. We have some $70 donation things. We have a KPFA beanie. We have some socks. We have some shirts. We have a water bottle to you know, keep you hydrated, make sure that you're feeling healthy and feeling good. So let's see if we can um, work on getting those donations up and moving forward with KPFA. And with that, let's get more into some music. And let's listen again to Mr. James Brown. Mr. Dynamite, Mr. James Brown playing that for you. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. I can say that. So with that, um, we want to make sure that we talk about James. And, you know, when he came out with that song, uh, it was really important at that time to help with um, identity. And during that time of the civil rights, a lot of action, there was a lot of um, negative—excuse me negativity in terms of the perception of the nation overall. But within the community, within the black community, it was important to make sure that we set up and take ownership and take pride in who we are and what we are, where we come from and where we're going. 
So uh, it actually kind of followed. Uh, in this case, it was say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. But this is a, a progression, you know. Uh, obviously, there was the, with the history of this nation and over 400 years and some of the things that happened, there's the N-word. Won't go much, too much further into that, uh, even though it still exists from time to time, unfortunately, unfortunately. Uh, and that then progressed to some other words that are just as negative. But eventually there uh, was a word Negro uh, that was used, especially around that time to discuss blacks. Uh, and then, we, again, the progression continued from black to Afro-American to African-American. And that's sort of where we are today. So with that, what I'd like to do is get into a piece uh, in a conversation between and during an interview with Malcolm X and Bayard Rustin. And they sort of talk about this identity and understanding and having dignity from that a little bit. So let's listen in on that. Here in the WBAI studios are Bayard Rustin, executive secretary of the War Resisters League, and Malcolm X, minister of Muhammad's Temple of Islam in New York. Both of you gentlemen are working in your own ways for the welfare of the American Negro. I wonder if I could ask a question here. Mr. Rustin, uh, progress in your terms, does it involve a greater sense of racial identity? I believe that it is very important to have a great sense of racial identity because I believe that it is quite impossible for people to struggle creatively if they do not truly believe in themselves. Uh, I believe that dignity is first. Now this for me is doubly important precisely because believing in integration and, and not having been told where we are to go, I can see nothing more logical than staying here and struggling for one's rights. Also because of moral principles which I hold, but leave them aside for the moment. I can see no way for the Negro to struggle except through nonviolence and a dedication to strategic nonviolence as, in sense, a matter of principle. Now, therefore, if you are going to be able to struggle with nonviolence, to a certain extent, you have to have affection for the people who are mistreating you. No affection for the other fellow is possible without a great sense of dignity in oneself and therefore the dignity of the Negro for me is not something that is an aside it is an essential of the struggle the people in Montgomery were able to struggle and get integration on their buses for a simple reason ten years before they could not have done it because they did not believe in themselves when they believed in themselves, they could then be socially affectionate to the opposition while at the same time being extremely militant and walking and being prepared to sacrifice. I think this is most important. And I would therefore agree with Malcolm X that doing away with the ugliness which our people have had as a result of their poverty and their position is very necessary and important. We can certainly agree here. Thank you. Uh, and you know, I was so happy, Mr. Uh, Rustin, to hear you say that uh, dignity is most important. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad absolutely, uh, ins he emphasizes to us 
the importance of dignity, but you cannot uh, have dignity. Uh, uh, dignity means a high regard for yourself. Right. You can't have high regard for that which you have no knowledge of. And when you ask a, a, a white man his nationality, for instance, and he says German, immediately he's connected with a with a German nation, a German flag in the past, a German culture. If he says uh, he's a, a, uh, an Englishman, he's connected with England and he's connected with a culture. Now, if you ask a black man in America and he says Negro, right there, he's putting a term on himself that carries more contempt with it than any word that exists in the, in the Webster's Dictionary today. Now, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that the black man in America is not looked down upon because he's black. He's looked down upon because he's called a Negro. A black man can come here from Africa. He's not a Negro. He's an African. He has a culture. They, a, a black man from Africa can put on his long flowing robes and have his head ramped up and walk around in, in Alabama or Mississippi and not run into the same abuses and barriers and pitfalls that you and I would run into here in America, dressed like a white man, speaking like a white man with the religion of the white man and with the false hit conception of history that the white man has brainwashed us with and at the same time calling ourselves by the white man's name now what mr muhammad says is this instead of us uh, spending all of our time uh, uh, griping with the white man for the way he has treated us or for what he deprives us of, what we must do is get some dignity which we cannot have without having a knowledge of ourselves. We must have some kind of cultural knowledge in our background in order for, we, we must know what our parents did and what our foreparents did in order to have high regard for our foreparents and if you don't have an high regard, high regard for your foreparents you can't regard yourself highly. You take a man who has been taught that his father used to pull a plow and his mother was a maid for the master. He can't, he can't uh, 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 look up at his parents. But when you send him back beyond the time that his father was pulling a plow and back beyond the time when his mother was a maid for the white man, back to the time when he was living along the banks of the Nile in palaces, at the same time the white man was living in the caves of Europe and history will bear that out. Or at a time when he was wearing silk in the East and in Africa and Asia, at a time when the white man whom he regards so highly today uh, didn't know what clothes were, at a time when he was cooking and seasoning his food, uh, when at the same time the white man whom he idolizes and worships today didn't know what cooked food was, then uh, when you go back then and find out what a great history that the black man had, how his foreparents were the ones who engineered the pyramids, and how that uh, the, the head or the face on the Sphinx in Africa, which is one of the oldest statues on this earth, is not a European, but it's a black man. He begins to look back there and see that his people were somebody. He begins immediately to throw off this inferior attitude, and he begins to look up at himself. And then he stops abusing himself. He stops getting drunk. He stops trying to uh, escape uh, from the surroundings or the conditions that he's in by turning to dope or alcohol. Well, he look, begins to toss aside these abuses. I agree thoroughly. And uh, I am at the present time doing some work on the Gar Empire. Precisely yes, because I think this is important. It's very important. But now let me ask you another question because I want to clarify your position on the Jewish question. Where, do you come, where does your group come out on this question? Because I've, uh, I, I only tell you what, I don't want to tell you what I've heard. I want tell to see me anything what you you've heard and I'll clarify it. Well, I have uh, been given to understand that your position is, the, particularly in Harlem, that uh, the Jews dominate 
that uh, one of the reasons that the Negro is so depressed is that the Jews are exploiting him and uh, that uh, the Jews are exploiting the, attempting to exploit the Arab world and stir up difficulties uh, in the Middle East. I'd like to know whether this is a, a misunderstanding I have. I should say that we only have a few minutes more. Yes, sir. Uh, if you, sir, will read what the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has written, and he has written much, mm -hmm. I don't think you can find an article where he has ever pointed out the Jew as an exploiter of the black man. He speaks of the exploiter, period. He doesn't break it down in terms of a Frenchman or an Englishman or a Jew or a German. He speaks of the exploiter. Mm -hmm. And uh, 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 sometimes the man who is the most guilty of exploitation will think that you're pointing the finger at him and put out the propaganda that you're anti this or that you're anti that. We make no distinction between exploitation and exploiter. Now, what do you mean when you say the man who uh, is the most exploiting will put out propaganda? I say this, that usually when you find a man putting out propaganda against Muslims, usually that man feels that the finger is being pointed at him. But In other words, you think that many Jews feel that way? Uh, I don't know, uh -huh. but I say that you cannot find anything that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has written or said that uh, at any time will label the Jew as an exploiter. Mm -hmm. No, sir, but he label he speaks about the exploitation and the oppression and the deception that has been used against the black people of America. Now, the man that is guilty, let whoever is guilty uh, wear that shoe. Mm -hmm. But he has never made a distinction between uh, a Frenchman, again I say, or, uh, or uh, a Jew, or a German, or what have you. The exploiter is the exploiter. I don't care what kind of label you put on him, and he can't duck it. Thank you very much, Mr. Bayard Rustin and Mr. Malcolm X. Thank you, Mr. Donald. Wow. So again, we just heard from Malcolm X himself, and it was interesting, uh, the conversation with Bayard Rustin and talking about racial and cultural identity and what just a foundational building that block that is for the psychology of, of us all. So interesting at that time, again, changing from Negro to focusing on being black, Afro-American. And of course, today we use the term African-American to sort of reclaim that cultural past uh, that was uh, separated from us with the institution of slavery. So with that, um, I'd like to... Uh, get back into understanding what's going on here at the station. This is KPFA 94.1 FM. I'm your host, Stevie G. And we are in the middle of a fun drive. So we'd like to see some donations come in from Oakland, from Berkeley, from San Francisco, from the East Bay, from San Francisco, from the city. Let's hear from everybody. Let's see if we can do to kind of get these numbers going and moving in that direction, which we have been listening to uh, for this hour have, has been the collection. Uh, some we've heard from the speeches of Malcolm X. Some we've heard from the Voices that change America, where, again, we heard some uh, other clips and interesting artifacts from uh, the archives involving Malcolm X. And it's very important. So we'd like to get some donations. That number is 1-800-439-5732. That's the phone number, 800. 439-5732 and also online at kpfa.org so keep that coming and keep that moving keep that going on this station only makes it through your participation we do not have corporate sponsors we have you we have the community we have us 
and it's all about us. And that's what we're doing here when we have these fun drives going on. So please, please reach out, help out. And again, let's look at some of those targets. It's the 70th anniversary for KPFA. $7, $70. Get that beanie, get those socks, get, those, get, those, uh, get that water bottle. Hydrate yourself. Uh, let's get some things going and moving in that direction. So with that, uh, we're going to listen to maybe a last song from Mr. Dynamite, Mr. James Brown. the end of tonight's show. We want you to tune in next week to Full Circle at 7 o'clock p.m. right here on KPFA 94.1 FM. And you can also check out our archive shows on kpfaapprentice.org. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Franklin Sterling. Our production consultant is Joy Moore. And special thanks to uh, Miss K for being here as our tech assist and on the board. Kendall, hop it up, hype it up. That's what's up. Group 43, Group 44. The first voice apprentices are here. And I am your host, Stevie G. Thank you so much for allowing us to serve you for this hour. Take care. Stay blessed. Let's donate. We can still get some things in there. KPFA. I don't want nobody.